You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verse 1 to chapter 30, verse 24. I'll be reading from the CSB version. Um, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. Jacob resumed his journey and went to the eastern country. He looked and saw a well in a field. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, because the sheep were watered from this well. But a large stone covered the opening of the well. The shepherds would roll the stone from the opening of the well and water the sheep when all the flocks were gathered there. Then they would return the stone to its place over the well's opening. Jacob asked the men at the well, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they answered. Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Jacob asked them. They answered, We know him. Is he well? Jacob asked. Yes, they said. And here is his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. Then Jacob said, Look, it is still broad daylight. It's not time for the animals to be gathered. Water the flock, then go out and let them graze. But they replied, We can't until all the flocks have been gathered and the stone is rolled from the well's opening. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. As soon as Jacob saw his uncle Laban's daughter Rachel with his sheep, he went up and rolled the stone from the opening and watered his uncle Laban's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. He told Rachel that he was her father's relative, Rebekah's son. She ran and told her father. When Laban heard the news about his sister's son, Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he took him to his house, and Jacob told him all that had happened. Laban said to him, Yes, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him a month, Laban said to him, Just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he answered Laban, I will work for you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban replied, Better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay with me. So Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Since my time is complete, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited all the men of the place and sponsored a feast. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And he slept with her. And Laban gave his slave Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her slave. When morning came, 
There was Leah. So he said to Laban, What have you done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Laban answered, It is not the custom in our country to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn. Complete this week of wedding celebration, and we will also give you this younger one in return for working yet another seven years for me. And Jacob did just that. He finished the week of celebration, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. And Laban gave his slave Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her slave. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Leah conceived and gave birth to a son and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again gave birth to a son and said, The Lord heard that I am neglected and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again, gave birth to a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jacob became angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. Then she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her, and she will bear children for me, so that through her I too can build a family. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Rachel said, In my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, What good fortune? And she named him Gad. When Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I am happy that the woman call me happy. So she named him Asher. Reuben went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. When he brought them to his mother Leah, Rachel asked, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah replied to her, Isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well then, Rachel said, He can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come with me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So Jacob slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband, and she named him Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. 
God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. And she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. God, we do ask this day as we hear from your word that you might be uh, moving in our hearts, uh, meeting us in our pain and our grief and our sorrow, and helping us see that Jesus is so much better. In your kindness, help us see your love and your grace. These things we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll see how we go. Um, I think that few relationships reveal our true selves more than marriage or parenting. There's an intensity that comes with those two relationships in particular that exposes who we are. Now, it's not to say that you have to have a spouse or kids to be truly yourself. I know really close friendships can be like that as well. I'm not married, I have no kids, but I do have one or two friends who are so close, they're like family. It is to say, though, that marriage and parenting are so close to our hearts that we kind of can't not be our truest selves in them. It's those relationships that reveal the best of us and also reveal the worst of us. And it's those relationships that reveal what we really believe about God. You see, just think about it in church life. It's very easy to say, I trust God with that person's life if I don't actually really care about them. It's easy to say, I trust God when the situation doesn't actually affect someone I love. No, it's only when I love someone... It's only when I long for a relationship with someone that trusting God becomes so much harder. How do I trust God when I really want marriage, but I can't get it? How do I trust God when I've been trying for kids for months, but I can't seem to fall pregnant? How do I trust God when my son is making an awful life decision, or my daughter is making decisions that's leading them away from the Lord? You see, whatever I say, say I believe about God, actually few relationships will reveal what I actually believe about God more than my family or my closest friends. And that's been Jacob's story so far, hasn't it? When it comes to those relationships that matter most, with his father, his mother, and brother, his true self is revealed, is exposed. He's Jacob the deceiver, a man who will lie, cheat, and steal to get whatever he wants, however he can. And now, Jacob faces another challenge with another set of people, another set of loved ones. He confronts a situation that, can I level with you, so many of us are facing in our church life. He's looking for a spouse, and his wives are trying for a child. So here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see two scenes, followed by two warnings, and then two comforts. Two scenes, two warnings, and two comforts. Scene number one, Jacob is looking for a spouse. Let's be honest, I know that some of you are as well. You're in that situation where that's what you'd love more than anything else. So let's see if Jacob's game is as good as yours. In verses 1 to 30, he comes upon a well. He meets some of the men there and he asks where they're from. And they say, well, we're from Haran. And Jacob realizes, my gosh, they know my uncle. 
hey, things are going well. Remember, he was supposed to find someone from within God's people, or not a Canaanite. So Jacob then says, okay, things are going well so far, going according to plan, and he looks up, and what does he see? He sees Rachel. Wow. He's dumbstruck. He's giddy with excitement. Verse 11, Jacob kissed Rachel and wept loudly. Now, Brothers, if you meet a girl and you fall head, just don't, it's not a good move, right? Just, but for somehow, for him, it works. Rachel runs home. She tells her dad what's happened. Laban says to his nephew Jacob, yes, you are my flesh and blood. Can you see what's going on here? For a man who's looking for a spouse, for a man who was told by his parents, you need to find someone among God's people, not outside among the Canaanites, here's the criteria, here's the list, everything's going according to plan. This is the moment you check the app, you read through the person's profile, and you think to yourself, yes, tick, tick, tick. She, she ticks everything on my checklist. And don't lie. We all know you've got a checklist, so don't deny it. And then you see the most important detail of all. Christian, reformed evangelical, hobbies, I enjoy listening to Tim Keller sermons. And you think, yes, the Lord provides but then his search takes an unexpected twist. Jacob is working for his uncle. About a month in, his uncle says to him, hey, just because you're my relative, should you work for me for nothing? No, no, no. Tell me what your wages should be. Wow. We ever had a job like that. What do you want to be paid? And then Jacob, right? Ultimate romantic makes a bold play. It's a power move, right? I'll work for you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, Laban actually has two daughters. Rachel, the younger girl, and Leah, the older girl. And it's a bit sad. Here's the tragedy, right? By the standards of that day, Rachel was the pretty one. And Leah was not. So he says Leah had tender eyes, which is actually a euphemism for saying she, she probably had some deficiency. It's not very nice, is it? Knowing that your sibling is prettier than you and feeling just a little overlooked. Then a man comes along, what does he do? He makes this bold romantic play after for you to work for seven years, not for you, but for your sister, the pretty one. And that's what he does. Jacob works seven years for Rachel, and in verse 20 it says, I love this, they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. It's beautiful. Just imagine waiting seven years for a girl. But it just went like a moment. Seven years fly when you're in love. Finally, their wedding day comes. Guests are invited. The feast is prepared. Rachel is looking stunning. I've got eight weddings to do next year. I'm going to be saying that. Wow, she looks stunning, right? She will. And the guys will as well. I'm very excited. Don't worry. Um, but then what happens is this, after the reception, in the dead of night, Laban does a bait and switch. Jacob has probably had a few too many drinks. He makes love to the woman beside him. But in the morning, he wakes up, probably with a slight hangover, turns around, and he sees Leah, the other one. I mean, just imagine how he must feel. Cheated, a bit grossed out, deceived. Jacob. It's ironic, isn't it? The great deceiver has now himself been deceived. Like nephew, like uncle. 
Laban makes some excuse, oh, it's not customary for the younger daughters to get married first. That's why I did what I did. But Jacob, my boy, if you work another seven years for me, you get Rachel as well. What a lying, scheming uncle. But Jacob does it. He works another seven years to win Rachel as his wife. And this scene ends with Jacob loving Rachel more than Leah. Now, on the one hand, we get it, don't we? I mean, Jacob always loved Rachel. It's only natural that he'd love her more than a woman whom he never wanted to marry. But on the other, just feel for Leah for a moment. She's Jacob's wife just as much as Rachel is. And yet she's the one who's not loved. We almost hear this echo in this moment of Isaac and Rebekah favoring one son over another. That's our first scene, looking for a spouse. But in this second scene, the focus turns away from Jacob, and we now find Leah and Rachel both trying for a child. Now, can I say, uh, as someone who's not a dad, I never quite understood the, the pain and, and the hardship of trying for kids until many of my friends started trying for kids. Some couples go into the process expecting kids to just kind of happen. But for many couples, it can actually take a very long time. Every month you wait with bated breath. But every month it's a negative. You're just so disappointed in it. Even if you do fall pregnant in that first trimester, you're trying to manage your expectations. There might be complications, and you just live in fear of that. I suspect what's really hard is if you're struggling to get pregnant, looking around and seeing so many of your friends fall pregnant so much more easily. And in all of that uncertainty, excitement, and even grief, it's really hard for our true selves to not emerge, isn't it? Look at what happens. Leah and Rachel are both trying for kids, and we see their true selves emerge. And can I say, it's not pretty. In verse 31, Leah is neglected by Jacob. He loves Rachel far more than her. Just pause to think about that for a moment. Leah is living in a loveless marriage. I mean, that's awful. But into that, God comes to her in love. God loves the unloved spouse. He gives her four sons. And look at their names. Reuben, which sounds like seen my affliction because God saw her grief of not being loved. Simeon, which sounds like has heard because God heard her cry. Levi, which sounds like attached because she hopes and longs for Jacob to finally be attached to her. And Judah, which sounds like praise because she praises God for providing for her. I mean, it's beautiful when you think about it, isn't it? God comes and blesses this neglected wife with four young children. But it's beautiful in his brokenness. Because Leah hopes that these kids will make her husband finally love her. It's a sad and tragic situation for Leah to be in. But I want you to pause for a moment and imagine what Rachel must be feeling as well. You see, if Leah's the sad girl, then Rachel's kind of the mean girl. I'm prettier than her. And Jacob loves me more than her. But why can she have kids and not me? And every time and every month, you're reminded of your childlessness. You hear your sister announce, I'm pregnant. 
again. And you're like, oh, good, happy for you. And you think, really? I mean, why me? And why her? She is the ugly one. She's the one no one wants. Why does God bless her with kids and I'm sitting here and I have none? Rachel is gripped with envy for she cannot fall pregnant. So she takes things into her own hands. She gives Jacob her maid Bilhah. Go sleep with her and she'll bear children for me so that through her I too can build a family. Rachel is doing a Sarah. Sarah who told Abraham to sleep with her servant Hagar. And if we know anything from Genesis, this is a bad move. Rachel is not trusting God's will. She is not trusting God's ways. And she is not trusting God's time. But Bilhah bears a child. And Rachel's pretty chuffed, right? She names him Dan, which sounds like the word vindicated, but she says, God's vindicated my decision to use my slave. But Dan also sounds like the word judged. And I wonder if it's almost this intentional wordplay. You see, Rachel thinks that God has vindicated her sin. But in reality, she stands judged by God. Judged for being just like Jacob. Judged for fighting with God. Judged for wrestling with God. I mean, that's why she names Bilhah's second child Naphtali, which means my wrestling. Can you see, friends, Rachel's proud of her sin, and she's unrepentant about having done whatever it takes to get whatever she wants. And then, in verse 9, Leah looks over, and she sees the game that Rachel is playing, and she thinks, wow, it works. And if it works for her, it can work for me. So she takes her maid, Zilpah, and and gives her to Jacob. And guess what? Zilpah bears two sons. Gad, which sounds like good fortune, Asher, which means happy. And you've got to wonder at this point, what the heck is going on? These two sisters are locked in a duel of fates to bear more children. They're ruled by lies, envy, and deceit. And it's sad because it almost seems to have nothing to do with kids at this point. It seems to have everything to do with themselves. It's envy. And selfishness, pure and simple. But then can I say, when you thought it was weird enough, it gets even weirder. Reuben, Leah's firstborn son, finds some mandrakes in the field and he brings them home. Now we need to understand what mandrakes are. They are not the pot that screams in Harry Potter. They were an ancient Near Eastern aphrodisiac. People in that time believed that mandrakes would help a woman's fertility. A few weeks ago, someone uh, gave me a gift. They gifted me Korean red ginseng. Apparently, it's supposed to help improve your energy. That, that's kind of what mandrakes were in that time. So Rachel says to Leah, give me some of them. They'll help me conceive. And you know what? If you give me the mandrakes, I'll give you Jacob for one night only. You can almost hear the bitterness, can't you? You can sleep with a husband that you want and feel the love that he doesn't have for you. But Rachel's plan backfires. Because after that night, Leah falls pregnant again. She has Issachar, a reward, and Zebulun, which sounds like honored. She is. She even gives birth to a precious baby girl called Dina. But not Rachel. Rachel is still childless, still waiting, still heartbroken. 
And you've got to wonder, right, how she must feel. After all the lies, envy, and deceit, after the surrogates and stimulants, she's still without child and still without hope. But in verse 22, you find these three beautiful words. God remembered Rachel. And he gave her a child of her own. You know, few relationships reveal our true selves more than parenting. And we see between Leah and Rachel their true selves. And it's awful, isn't it? It's lies, it's envy, it's deceit. Look, can I say, personally, I, I, I've learned I need to be slow to judge these two women. Because I can't personally imagine the pain of being trapped in a loveless marriage like Leah. I can't personally understand the the grief of longing to have a child who you cannot bear like Rachel. And if we're honest, it's actually not often out of spite or malice that we sin. It's often out of that loveless longing and pain that we stop trusting God. It's often out of our deepest grief that we decide to take matters into our own hands. We think, like Rachel may have thought, God doesn't really love me, because if he did, he'd give me that husband or wife. He'd bless me with that son or daughter. And if he won't give it to me in love, then I guess I'm just going to have to get it for myself. There's the two scenes. Here's the two warnings. Firstly, beware the passage of time. Beware the passage of time. Did you notice that as Jacob looks for a spouse, time markers are everywhere in the passage? Look down, verse 14, after Jacob had stayed with him a month. Verse 18, I'll work for you seven years. Verse 20, so Jacob worked seven years. Verse 30, he worked for Laban another seven years. Do you remember how long Jacob was meant to stay there? How long he was meant to be with Laban before going home? Chapter 27, verse 44, a few days. A few days. But here we are 14 years later, and time has carried Jacob away. And you know what I wonder? What happened to the rock? Remember? That rock of remembrance? What happened to that personal encounter that he had with the Lord? Now 14 years have passed, and he couldn't be further from it. It's almost like the altar call moment you have as a teenager. For the 15th time, you go up. Then 14 years pass, and you couldn't feel further from God. It's as if the waves of time have worn down that rock of remembrance. Beware the passage of time which can carry us away from God. But secondly, the risk is this, that we will panic over the passage of time and stop trusting the Lord. I mean, think about Rachel, who would have felt the passage of time in her very own body. Every month that passed was another month closer to never being able to have kids. No wonder that instead of waiting on God, Rachel panicked and did whatever it took. But in the end, only God can give to her what she could not get for herself. I see many believers who panic over the passage of time, that as they get older, they will lose the chance to ever get married or lose the chance to ever have kids. 
And just like Rachel, they stop trusting God. And they do things like marry outside his people for fear that time will escape them. Friends, can I say, God doesn't promise us a spouse or a child. He promises us something so much more. Forgiveness from our past. Freedom from our sins. A future full of hope with or without marriage or kids. But if we're honest, even when it comes to these greater promises, it can feel like we're waiting 14 years for God to come good, can't it? Life can so often feel so far from God's promise. Life can feel like endless years of loneliness, bitterness and depression. Years of that same old struggle. Years with the same old sins. Yesterday, uh, I was at a preaching conference and my friend was uh, speaking about the cost of going into ministry. And he said, at the age of 50, you would think that I would be over trying to get my parents' approval. He goes, that is one thing that never leaves you. Same old sins, same old struggles. But as time passes by and God's promises feel so far, Please, friends, do not panic and stop trusting the Lord. Hold on to that rock of remembrance. God has not forgotten you. Beware the passage of time. Secondly, beware the dangers of envy. It was envy that divided sisters. Envy that abused slaves. Envy that broke up families. Envy that destroyed faith in God. Friends, it's painful enough to long for a marriage you cannot have. It is hard enough to long for children you cannot bear. But to feel that pain, when you see everyone else in the room find that spouse or bear that child, it's like salt in the wound. And though we might never say it, we can feel a bit like Rachel who looks down on Leah, can't we? The undeserving one. Oh. Did you hear? That person's dating someone. And we think to ourselves, them? Who would want to date them? I mean, I'm not saying I'm great, but them? We struggle for two years to conceive a child. And then some young couple who knows absolutely nothing about life, they fall pregnant without trying, with twins. How the wicked prosper. It's so easy for envy to take root in our hearts, isn't it? And can I say, as our church family enters a season of yet more marriages and yet more births, the dark side of our joy is the great risk of envy. Envy destroyed this family. Envy can destroy a church. Envy can destroy our faith. Envy can so easily morph into bitterness at others and bitterness at God. And I realize that when envy sits in our hearts, we might not be, how do I put it? We might be too proud to say, I want someone else's life. So what we say is, we don't say, I want someone else's life. We become resentful at someone else's life. It's not that we wish that we had what they have. It's that we wish that they didn't have what we don't. Friends, as a church, we must beware the dangers of envy now more than ever. And if we're going to do that together, we've got to celebrate the joys of marriage and births in a way that is loving to one another. 
So I want to offer four ways that we can do that as a church. Four ways that we can celebrate the joys of marriage and birth, but not in a way that cultivates envy in our family. Firstly, say if, not when. Don't presume that all people will be married or be able to have kids. Say if, not when. Secondly, share the hardships as well as the joys. Don't compare the best of marriage and parenting with the worst of singleness and childlessness. Thirdly, invite others into your family life. Do not let other people feel like you're leaving them behind. Remind them that they still need you and you still need them. Fourthly, make Jesus Show us every day that real joy and real love are not found in a spouse or a child. They're found in God's Son. Let's commit ourselves to those things. Beware the dangers of envy. Two scenes, two warnings, and now finally, two comforts. Firstly, God's love is all you'll ever need. You know, the saddest part of this story is that Leah lives in a loveless marriage. I mean, just how sad is that? She, she longs to have kids so that she might win her husband's love. And as far as we can tell, Jacob never came around to loving her. As far as we can tell, she continued to love, to live in this loveless marriage. But in her lovelessness, God came and loved her most. You see, friends, if you look for ultimate love from a spouse or a child, you will make them your God, and their love will never be enough. Think about this reality. Jesus had no wife or children, and yet he was more loved than anyone who has ever existed. For he had the love of his Father, and so do we. You cannot live a loveless life if you are loved by God. Period. Maybe you're struggling with the grief of not being married or the pain of not being able to bear children. And maybe in your heart of hearts, you look at other people in your life and around church and you can't help but feel envy. And can I say it is right to grieve the loss of what we've never had. But do not think for a moment that if you are without spouse or child, that you are also somehow without love. No, let God's love guard you from envy, for his love is all you will ever need. If you enjoy God's love, you can grieve the loss of the lesser loves that you do not have. But you will not envy those who do have them. It's because we have God's love that we can trust him with our lesser loves. Finally, God can even use your greatest sin. You know, sometimes I stand there and look back on my life and I think of all the stupid things I've done. Things I know that hurt other people. Things I know that dishonored God. I wonder if you're the same. When you think about how you spoke to your friend. When you think about how harsh you were to your spouse. When you think about how controlling you were of your kids when you think about how rude you were to your parents, 
when you think about how envious we are of others, it is really easy to despair, isn't it? To think that our sins have ruined everything. But this passage shows us that God can even use our greatest sin. But do you remember what God's original promise was? He promised that he would bless Jacob with many children who would fill the earth and bless the world. And yet after this circus of lies, envy and deceit, look at where we are. Eleven sons and a daughter. In some crazy way, God hasn't just worked around their sin, he's actually worked through their sin and used their sin to achieve something greater. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that God's sovereignty justifies our sin. It doesn't. But I'm saying that God's sovereignty can even use our sin and turn it into a means of grace. Our sin cannot subvert God's sovereignty. In fact, even our most serious of sins can be made part of God's sovereign plan. I mean, isn't that what we see in the death of Jesus? Acts 2 says that Jesus was killed by lawless people, and yet it was all according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. They murdered him in sin, but God used it in grace. Do not think that your sin is greater than the grace of God. You could have done the most shameful things with the partners you've chased. You could have made the gravest of mistakes with the children you've raised. But do not despair. Our sin does not disqualify us from God's kingdom. It qualifies us for His grace. If you feel like your sin has totally wrecked your life, God can take even that and He can use it for good. Gosh, He did it with the murder of His Son. He can do it with the sins of His people. It is true that few relationships reveal our true selves more than marriage or parenting. But the only relationship where we find our true self is with Jesus. The most important relationships in life are not with our spouse and children, precious though they are. The most important relationship in life is with our God. His love is more than enough. His sovereignty is greater than our sin. So how? How could we ever envy those who have lesser loves than him? How? How could we ever not trust in his greater love for us? Let me pray. God, we know that in our sin... And in our envy, so often we do not see your love as enough. But in your kindness, help us take heart. Help us see in the Lord Jesus a love that we have in infinite supply. So that we might turn to him. We might run from sin. And in him we might find all the love we will ever truly need. These things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.